Ladies and gents, welcome to episode 119 of A. Thompson and Other Disappointments. We're back here, beer in hand. Well, almost in hand. Uh, we're keeping it booge. We're keeping it hashtag Binfluencer. Uh, if it's your first time listening, that is, that's the vibe here. Um, I do, uh, you know, a bit of online stuff. I'm on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram. And uh, uh, if you're curious, you can always find me at Aid Thompson with an I-N on the end but absolutely not, like categorically not an influencer. Um, not inspiring you. I'm not telling you to live your best life. Uh, it's more the opposite. I am what we call a binfluencer. And this is a, this is a binfluencers podcast where we scrape a handful of awful from the bottom of a bin, show it to you, like, oh, look at this shit. Oh, everything's fucked. And then tell you to grab a drink, sit down, and we'll try and get some doom lols out of it. That is the vibe, guys. Um, thanks very much to those of you who have jumped on the Patreon and continue to back the podcast. Um, every little bit helps and uh, we're looking to grow it week by week. If you're not in a position to support via Patreon, all I would ask is just take an episode that you've enjoyed and send it out to a mate. Um, help it to grow a little bit. Um, more about that at the end of the show. And before we jump into uh, tonight's episode proper, as it were, um, with, uh, with tonight's guest, who I'm super psyched to be speaking with, um, I am equally psyched about the London meetup, which is happening on Thursday, the 27th of October in London E1. Um, but yeah, as I say, more about the Patreon and that at the end of the show. My guest this week is a molecular immunologist at the University of Roehampton. Um, our paths crossed online um, and veteran listeners, veteran viewers on YouTube will perhaps know that I enjoy throwing questions at academics, at people uh, infinitely smarter than me who can who can give me the answers that I'm looking for uh, about life, love, the universe. Um, and we had a bit of a, a like a brief exchange on a tweet thread. Um, but then once I saw his bio, I thought, great, fucking perfect, bullseye. Because uh, I don't know about you guys listening, um, but it feels like a weird time right now, I think. You know, like like the pandemic hit, Everything changed, the world shifted, but now we're at this sort of weird purgatorial point where it's like, uh, you know, are we out of it? Is it over? Or, uh, or am I being complacent? You know, am I being that guy where everyone's like, well, no, like you've got to be, you've got to be vigilant. Like we're not out of this yet. Am I being that guy? Um, you know. But more than that, this anyway, this is a guy who has some experience in making sense of, of, of some of that and also genome studies and uh, and most importantly, an academic who, you know, I'd love to hear his thoughts about anti-science, misinformation and, and so on. So there's a lot that we can touch on with my guest tonight. Uh, so to that end, please welcome to the show, Dr. Robert Bush. Woo! Hello and good evening. Good evening to you. Um, it's... Um, that was quite an introduction. That's quite an act to live up to, uh, and I shall do my best. Sure, sure. So I'm in your hands, Abe, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, um, let's yes. let's get into it. So um, I, I mentioned like our, our paths crossed on Twitter. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you tonight that I, I was alluding to a second ago was sort of misinformation, which obviously that just catches fire on Twitter and and Facebook. Um, I was curious to hear what your thoughts are about misinformation, specifically around the scientific community, because that must be a real like bone of contention, a real frustration for you as a man of science, man of facts, stats, figures. 
um you know could, could you talk us through your experience of misinformation and and how frustrating it's been for you it's a really interesting topic and a, and a factor in the way that my own sort of work life has unfolded mm. uh, during the um during the pandemic so far and I'm not sure that I have any pithy statements about it, but it comes in all sorts of very interesting forms, and um, and each one brings its own um, ways of thinking about pushing back as a scientist and as someone who's interested, sort of, as a citizen in living in a reality-based universe. Sure, and. It, the um, and it comes up in our teaching as well. So one of the, so at Roehampton we do a, a good amount of teaching in our academic workday, and one of the things I do is look after um, groups of students who are into study biomedical science, uh, as in the, the sort of version of it where people go on and uh, become lab scientists in the National Health Service. So that is right. what our degree course is accredited for. And um, this is actually one of the exercises that we get our first year students to do, to dig into a bit of um, uh, misinformation, pseudoscience, um, anything of that ilk, and um, work out a scientifically based debunking. And it turns out not to be a, a very simple thing to do. So could you give us uh, maybe an example? And first year students, if, you, if any of you will be listening, I have no idea. Uh, but this will be coming up in your course at some point <laughs> fairly soon. Um, that's just a little plug. But could, um, could you maybe give us an example of... Like well, they get into all sorts of things. They get into they get into homeopathy. They get into vaccine disinformation in COVID. They get into astrology, uh, and the assignment is very broad. They can pick what what they want and make something of it. But then they need to have a scientifically well founded um, uh, response to this and uh, figure out whether they can dig up some relevant literature, which turns out to be an interesting challenge in its own right. So during COVID. Um, there has been a lot of disinformation about the pandemic itself. Um, was it a thing? Uh, was debated? Um, was it as severe as um, sort of official public public health officials made out made it out to be? And the answer to that was uh, yes, but that was um, hotly debated. Uh, there was an extraordinary amount of inf uh, of disinformation about about vaccines and what they are and what they aren't we used and whether they are even vaccines and what form they took uh, there was an awful lot about um, um, the uh, science that genuinely shifted over the course of the pandemic uh, about uh, other measures to um, to reduce transmission um, and a lot of the stuff in that space that was quite interesting to me was that um that uh, some of the claims about what was efficacious and what wasn't, um, if you looked at the data, was on a grayscale. And what uh, what public pronouncements seemed to suggest was that it was black and white. And the counter arguments were about it being black and white in the opposite direction, when in fact everything 
was was a shade of grey. So I'm talking about things like, oh, um, at some point, I, I'm not quite sure whether it was uh, Boris Johnson or one of his public health sidekicks, um, like Professor Witte, uh, who made statements about the safety of the vaccine and about the efficacy of the vaccine. And uh, on the efficacy side, they were saying things like, you know, the vaccine works uh, against... Um, uh, it, it works against uh, you know severe outcomes like hospitalization and death, but it yeah. doesn't stop you from um, from catching it and transmitting it. And those things weren't wrong, but uh, but it was made out to be um, uh, an all or none thing. Whereas uh, it is still true that vaccinated people, albeit at much lower frequencies, will have to go to hospital and will unfortunately um, pass away. Although that is much less common, it's not down to zero. And on the other hand, uh, at the early stages in the pandemic, the um, uh, there was a, a measurable and clear effect in reducing infection and transmission. But it was, uh, but but the effect again was not all or none, and it was weaker. It might have been sort of in the thirty percent to fifty percent range, rather than in the ninety-five percent plus range. So, what um, but, what... but but all of this was was black and white, and um, uh, in in the discourse, whereas it was shades of grey in real life. And I think my own sort of temperament is more about shades and shades of grey, uh, maybe. And um, I, I thought that was that was an interesting thing to note. The same thing about the vaccines are safe and effective. Yes, uh, you can argue that. But um, the effectiveness, of course, keeps changing in response to a variety of things. The next variant uh, might have some escape and the vaccines would be a little bit less effective. Um, and that keeps carrying on. Um, the memory that you build up, the immune memory that you build up from the vaccines will peak at some point after you receive your jab and then fade again. And again, that is not a black and white thing. Um, and did it did it uh, surprise you that yes. um, that so so what you're referring to there in terms of the, the the arena of misinformation is sort of around the nuances, right? So you've got you, you refer to it as sort of yes. black and white versus the grey area. Um, mm. But I suppose the problem like that's that's where scientific debate comes in. But then the problem with that is then you've got this sort of realm of journalists who then use the gray area uh as as a way of i don't know f if furthering an agenda is the the right phrase in this instance but it's, then it's that very very doubt, right so this is very tricky because on the one hand um i think knowing a little bit about the shades of gray can inform behavior so if you know that the vaccine uh, only partially protects you from infection and, and yeah. uh, transmission, you might then think about other measures to take um, that might also have a partial effect. But if you have several layers of protection, you sort of get a compound interest in fact, uh, effect whereby your protection actually gets yeah. a lot better if more measures are adopted and if other people you interact with also um, adopt protective measures. So that kind of thing goes out of the window if you think about it as black and white, and then just say, well, you know, mask, you know, certain kinds of masks may not may not really work, and the vaccine doesn't really work, except it does to some extent. And every one of these measures adds adds a quantum of 
uh, solace perhaps not, but but protection. Um, yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because sorry to interrupt. Collectively, take that mindset is different. Yes. Yeah, I was just going to say it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, um, it's the same. I, I mean, I don't. I, don't necessarily want to get too political in this uh, hour that we spend together um but it's interesting that it's this it tends to be the same people who would be dismissive of any issues with something like brexit like ow oh, you know project fibs oh no it never happened like that sort of thing and then when you present them with something like masks or jabs then it's not like oh it'll be all right it's more like oh they'll never work oh they don't do anything you know like sort of the same dismissiveness but just like inverted almost Mm. Um, well so where's the common denominator Um, and we we can go there but I just uh, wanted to go back and really speak to what you were alluding to earlier which was which was that there's an advantage in thinking black and white which is that it's the simplicity of the message and the way it cuts through so if a GP tells you the vaccine is safe and effective that's one thing if I, as, a, as, as an academic, uh, say, well, you know, you have a, a, a very low but non-zero chance of, uh, having, a, of having a severe side effect, um, but trade that off against um, uh, the risk of an infection that is rampant around us and that has overall a higher likelihood, even when you're young, of doing something quite unpleasant to you, um, then that is a weaker message than the vaccine is safe and effective. Sure. And I understand that. And I think one of the things that's, uh, that, that uh, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've got to deal with this a little bit because I am actually involved in a little bit of an outreach uh, program that has worked with the community in Roehampton, which is a part of southwest London that, um, that is, is underserved in terms of medical needs. Um, and has a lot of interesting and wonderful diversity, but as a drawback to that, also some communities in which there's been a lot of spread of disinformation. And that was the really quite mad stuff. That was not rational concerns of the hesitant. That was, you know, the full-on 5G, um, uh, whatever that uh, organization uh, was that that tried to peddle COVID, uh, uh, sorry, Chloroquine and ivermectin, which all turned out to be, um, you know, plausible leads that didn't pan out in the end. Yeah. Uh, and where if you if you knew how to interpret the studies, um, uh, it, they they went they were unconvincing at the beginning, and they got weaker as more data and better data kept, became available. Can I just um, can I just ask? Did, yeah. Did it surprise you? Um, bec- like so, I always imagined something like the anti-vax movement when you say anti-vaxxers i always imagined like red state america like people in i don't know mississippi you know sort of chewing some tobacco it like not to sound too judgy about it but it felt like a problem over in america in maybe some of the less educated parts of america or you know it didn't feel like something that was going to come knocking on the door in the uk did it surprise you that it took hold well, it's interesting. I mean, it's been part of my uh, working life in the United States, um, albeit in the blue states, I think almost invariably. I did do a cross-country trip at some point, um, and I've had interesting conversations um, with with people of uh, politically very different persuasions. Sure. Um, but, okay, so am I surprised? 
Yes and no. I think one of the things that's been interesting to watch uh, has been um, that um, the uh, and, and this goes back a little bit to to what you were saying about the common denom denominators here. What is what is a common denominator between uh, between some strains of uh, Brexitism and some strains of um, of of vaccine skepticism that are not founded in realistic fears. I would or say issues. And I think I think one one sorry, uh, you were going to provide an answer. I was I was going oh, to go I'm on. Sorry. You continue contextual myself. Yeah, yeah. But but one one thing that is in, interesting to me is that uh, that the that uh, is is about how people evaluate risk and and benefit in a quantitative way. That's that's not necessarily uh, a task that that is easy to do if you don't have the, a little bit of training in it, and the general public doesn't really get that training. Um, but the other thing is is that we all for for victim to biases. I think. Um, and one of them might be uh, to say, well, um, you know, you're either really interested in knowing what the constraints of a problem are and then try to um, work your way through that maze to something that is a decent outcome and you are trying to, um, you know, work within a space that is given in this way or you think primarily led by things like lofty principles. And, um, right. and again, there's sort of an element of, of absolutist thinking in some strains, I think, of uh, that I've seen in the Brexit debate. One of them is the sense that um, what you really want to avoid in relation to the EU is to avoid any compromise on, sovereign, on national sovereignty. And I think that becomes very difficult when the basis for trade easements, for making things like uh, Northern Ireland relations work uh, without friction at, at the two borders that matter to that problem, when that really involves dealing with another uh, entity that exists in the real world and that you can't wish away. Mm. And it seems to me that um, uh, that in the question about how you deal with vaccines, again, so, or, sorry, how you deal with a pandemic, I should rather say. Sure. Um, the problem is, uh, is that, you know, none of us really want to deal with this. And some of the measures that need to be contemplated and possibly implemented um, uh, are, are an encroachment on individual liberties. And so one question, one option then is to say, okay, I'm going to, um, you know, make an informed decision about this, about where on the spectrum from liberalism to author, authoritarianism, it is a, appropriate for me to be based on the realities of, of the situation. Um, and uh, another one will, be, will say, well, give me liberty or give me death. Um, and, um, and I think both extremes on that spectrum are hazardous. The extreme on the vaccine side would be to say, okay, uh, you have extreme viral laissez-faire because you don't want to interfere in any way with the liberty of people um, to to congregate, 
yeah. to be uh, to be sociable, to um, uh, assert the political will by going out on the street, um, and um, you know, and you don't want any intrusion into people's lives. And then you have to live with the fact that um, that that would, in at the beginning of a pandemic, have caused an awful lot of deaths. And I think there's very little question about that. And one response to that could just be to dismiss that as a problem ent- entirely, or to minimise it. Mm. The other end, at the end, other end, end of the spectrum, um, you might conceive of an approach that prioritises preserving life over everything else, and then we would all still be locked up and only be talking on Skype or Zoom or yeah. uh, or Teams or whatever, and uh, and no one would ever would would get to do some of the things that they value. And so, in real life. Even the most restrictive countries have navigated that territory and made shifting decisions. Um, I think the UK ended up making almost perversely sort of very authoritarian decisions some of the time and very libertarian decisions at other uh, points in the pandemic. And both of them were ill-timed and (laughs) not not super productive at that time. Um, And I think one of the things that, that, that as a sort of you know, when when I when you observe the field, you see is that um, that some countries, specifically around the Pacific Rim, actually did really well initially out of testing and tracing, testing and contact tracing, and um, in the UK that was adopted and it was much much less effective. But a lot of that was about the implementation of that and the manner in which it was organised. Um, and if, if, you'd, if you'd seen what the South Koreans were doing about that, um, it would have been, first of all, much more rigorous and, yes, also rather more intrusive, but uh, also remarkably more effective at, sa- at saving lives and leading to fewer restrictions in the country. But it was a really, really rigid system of border controls. Why do you so, think we didn't so do that? There are different solutions to these problems, <clears throat> um, but but uh, but one but there is a meaningful difference between solving these problems with a regard to the external realities of it and trying to navigate those, mm. rather than going on lofty principle and being prone to being to to erring in on one extreme or the other and getting it quite catastrophically wrong. What, why Sorry. do you think we didn't? Uh, ape the South Korean approach and the New Zealand approach? Do you think it was as, as um, black and white as Boris Johnson is or likes to think he's a libertarian uh, and he doesn't want to encroach on people's freedoms? Or do you think it was media pressure or a mix of both? Or are we just useless? Okay. I think it might not be good for my blood pressure to read uh, to read the right honourable Boris Johnson's mind. Um, however, if you put me on the spot about this, what would I say? Um, now, so in, uh, I think it was around February, um, he gave a major speech, um, I forget exactly in which uh, international forum, in which he took pride in saying, well, we are not going to shut down the country or impose border controls because we want to set a deliberate counterweight um, to the idea that the uh, that 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 um, uh, that uh, the response to this is shutting things down, mm. and it was, I think, partly um, uh, a desire in in the aftermath of the end of the Brexit transition to demonstrate there and then that Britain was open for business, and politically maybe that was understandable uh, at that time for him, 
and perhaps also in terms of his general attitude, which is perhaps, you know, um, somewhere on the laissez-faire libertarian end of the spectrum, I think, in terms of uh, in terms of some of some of the attitudes that he was transporting. I love at the that. Time. I love that that like laissez-faire libertarianism, where it's like you you're very much up for people's freedoms, but mostly because you just can't be asked. <laughs> like, well, and 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 the neglect ends up having a little bit of a sting in the tail because uh, because then weeks later it became apparent that the cost of that would be overwhelming the National Health Service. Mm. And what had become apparent in the meantime was that Italy, uh, that regions in Italy, in, in northern Italy, specifically, I seem to remember the city of Bergamo, in, uh, had really severe problems, because not because they didn't want to act promptly, but because they were actually um, blindsided by the speed with which uh, tourism from China had imported the virus. Yeah. And those places became uh, ghost towns, uh, hospitals became completely overwhelmed. And so in the UK, it became apparent that to avert a similar scale of the problem, uh, there then had to be a very aggressive shutdown. And at that point, we were all locked in our homes uh, with only an hour or two to go out every day. And that was very burdensome on people's mental health. And some of those decisions probably uh, were helpful and, um, and did avert bad things. Other bad things nonetheless happened. Introducing infections into the care homes, I think, was sure. uh, a, a complete disaster and a real horror show for the people who went through that. Um, anyway, so the pendulum swung in both ways, uh, but there was really no upfront consistency in the strategy that was adopted. And I think um, the Pacific Rim had a slightly different model for dealing with this because they uh, looked at this and said, oh, it's a coronavirus. That has, um, uh, that is reminiscent of SARS and MERS. Yeah. Now, those are also coronavirus diseases, uh, but their pattern of spread was different. Uh, but it turns out that taking that approach ended up working um, in the pre-vaccine era to really clamp down on the spread of the infection in the countries that that took the le uh, that that took this coronavirus as seriously as uh, as SARS and MERS, which are more severe on the individual but actually less transmissible, and yeah. so they contact traced the heck out of this. There was a famous case study of a I think in evangelical church that ended up actually being sort of a, a super spreader causing a super spreader event with some, you know, thousand or so people infected by a simple, by one person walking into their church and spreading it. And the amazing thing is that they actually did hunt down those cases. Yeah. And stop, stop the further spread of the infection uh, from there on out. In the UK, I think there was never any chance because the, the guiding model for the pandemic response was to treat it as a respiratory pandemic that was influenza-like. And of course, there is merit to the comparison because it spreads through the respiratory tract. Um, what they didn't bargain for was that it was more transmissible and also once you had the infection, more likely to do you severe harm. Mm. And that was just the acute harm that was long before we knew about long COVID, uh, vascular complications, uh, long-term changes in the risk of immune complications or 
uh, uh, clotting-related illnesses, uh, which are now coming to light gradually. So okay. we now know that there is a long, uh, long-term uh, legacy of, uh, uh, of, of being infected, uh, which will affect possibly not everyone, but uh, some sizable enough proportion. And now that it, now that the the risk of infection is mm. so uh, is so widespread, and um, the virus is as rampant as it has been allowed to become, um, there may well be long-term issues with healthcare provision because all of those longer term consequences haven't really been factored in and will now need to be mopped up by the NHS somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And and so like where where are we at at the moment then in terms of the pandemic? Um I mean we've talked about misinformation and we've talked about um some of the challenges and troubles and different approaches that were rolled out in the in the earlier uh periods therein. Mm um yes where like it's it's difficult to work out at the moment if we should still be in panic mode or if everything's gone back to normal or you know if i go into pret now nobody's wearing masks anymore even like on trains or anything and it's off the Mm -hmm. front pages Mm -hmm. like everyone's talking about the pound crashing or what's going to happen to the nhs this winter like with i suppose that's you know covid related ish but um what's what's your opinion where where are we at with the pandemic Mm. right so I don't think I would ever be uh, someone to advocate to advocate for panic. Um, but I do think that there is a method to the madness that that seems to have been ad- adopted by, you know, the political communicators about this, and by the uh, and by the media, because and I think this goes into a, a perhaps a more subtle strain of disinformation, which is just not providing the information. Right, just like so blackout. So that, that is an interesting one. And it is, I don't think it's a formal blackout in any way. Uh, but of course, news is not news if you've been living with this stuff for a few years, right? Right. It I becomes see. tedious. Um, and it probably becomes tedious to report about. Uh, about. Uh, I, think, I think it's, you know, if you're, if you're under pressure to make a success of, some, of, a, of a big transformational project like Brexit, for better or worse, and if you are under pressure uh, at the moment to show that you're all about growth, um, right. sort of looking at the latest uh, discourse, what you really don't want is uh, is to be dragged down by people limiting their uh, their consumption or altering their behaviour to respond uh, to an ongoing uh, infectious illness that has remained at high levels. So it is still at so high levels. So if, if I wanted. Sorry. So it is still at high levels, uh, like uh... ah well. So the the short answer to that is undoubtedly yes. Right. That's interesting. So so if you um, and that's interesting to me that that is news. Uh, but that's precisely because of the extent to which uh, there hasn't been constant reinforcement in recent months. Ever since pretty much, I think was it Nadim Zahawi who became uh, health minister at some point under Johnson. And at that point, basically, he said, "Okay, we're going to lift all the restrictions uh, and it's over and we're no longer going to publish. And I think that was the first interesting change in the in the reporting on it. We're not going to uh, going to report anymore uh, the daily statistics of infections and deaths. Mm. 
which which to me was an interesting but, decision but because not not a blackout just to be clear <laughs> no 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 i mean i'm not i'm not say, i'm not saying that there's any censorship or anything or anything anything of like this it's just we are not going to put that out anymore there is, but it know, is there was a government there was a government of, dashboard it is kind of in that neighborhood though isn't it well, i mean if you if you're saying i'm not going to publish mm -hmm. the figures of how many people are dying per day of covid and we're lifting all the restrictions it's like mm. you're sort of removing the ability of journalists to scrutinize the government's approach and to warn people yeah. and you know yeah well so, so i mean certainly experts in the field continue to monitor it and so there are if, if people want to follow this by the way so since we're also speaking to the public once this thing has been edited and gone out mm -hmm. um uh, there, so one place where you get uh, pretty much weekly updates is on the youtube channel of uh tim specters uh, and colleagues uh, zoe app so this is okay. um, this is a study to which uh, millions of people in the UK have signed up, uh, basically to log um, uh, respiratory symptoms, and it's now broadened a little bit, but that's an aside. Um, but um, recording positive tests, recording their vaccine uh, their vaccine status, and recording respiratory flu-like and COVID symptoms, and from that comes um, a, a very uh, very closely monitored uh, natural history of the illness um, uh, through time, through geography, and, um, uh, and, um, um, and also um, some breakdown according to demographics. So at the moment, for example, we find, so all of this year, we've had levels of transmission and infection at levels that have at least been comparable to, if not exceeded, the earlier waves. Wow! And if that and if that comes as a shock, yeah. then um, then okay, take a look at at the Zoe app and take a look at that. And they have a website as well. Like that? How it, weird it, is it that? It, so we we we're all familiar with the the what is it two hundred thousand mm -hmm. deaths figure, and most people know about the social uh, care homes uh, yes. debacle. Um, but it's almost as much of a scandal to be at this stage of the pandemic where as many people are, are dying as in the earlier waves, or, or did you say as many cases? No, sorry, this was about, so just to be clear about this, this is about cases. Right. So there's the, the, the a COVID, COVID app tracks cases. Sure, my mistake. What, what I, then, I went I, we, I fully then, that, No, no, <laughs> that, that's, so, so and, and it is, I think it is true that ever since the advent of the vaccines, um, uh, there has been a partial uncoupling so that uh, we can now sustain much higher caseloads without having uh, nearly the same level of deaths and hospitalizations. But they're not down to zero. Sure. Um, and, um, and so... Is there... Um... You know, the, uh, so the... the uh, I, I should have looked up before we met... Um, where the best place is that you can now get death statistics, and I think it's probably um, it's probably uh, the the updates uh, by the of Office of National Statistics, mm. which uh, looks at where COVID comes on the death certificate. Um, now those tend to lag behind uh, what used to be the daily death reports. Um, which were just death uh, within 28 days of, of a positive test. And the objection to that 
more recently was that that post-vaccination, there were plenty of people who had COVID on board because it was circulating in a hospital, but they died of other causes. Sure. And so that, that's not necessarily the best metric. Uh, but back to, back to sort of infection and how likely you are to be exposed in your everyday, everyday life, um, that goes, uh, the, the other source of information is that uh, every two weeks, there is a national um, survey which I think is by the Health and Security, uh, by the Health Security Agency, um, uh, and that's basically a survey uh, uh, with with random sampling of tens of thousands of people across the UK uh, to determine using PCR testing what is the rate at which you are likely to encounter COVID in the general population. Right. Uh, and so those efforts are continuing, and it took quite a bit of uh, pushing on the part of the scientists to get Zahawi to continue those. But they are much less reported. Um, anyway, so at, at various points, at several points in this past year, uh, we've been uh, at, an, at sort of infection rates according to both of those studies, the Zoe app and, uh, and the national uh, you know, surveillance study every two years, um, where the where you're you're anywhere between one in fifty and one in twenty uh, people in the population being a uh, you know being infected at any one time. Yeah. And so, if you think about how rapidly this stuff spreads around, um, then that is one heck of a lot well, of cases. It's, cumulative. Yeah. I mean, it's it it helps. I think if you think of it like, okay, look, I go into London every Thursday. I'm going to be on a train yes. and that train is going to have at least 15 to 20 people in my carriage. So my chances of catching COVID every time exactly. I catch, and yes. I'm or, not just or on going train. Into a supermarket. Yes. Or going into a supermarket or going into any crowded set yeah. setting. Um, so we just had the start of teaching um, uh, in the university town. Uh, and, you know, the first thing I walk into is a tutor group of 15 people. And one of them has cold symptoms. Now the, the Zoe app actually now also, also tracks the common cold because they're hard to differentiate from COVID. Um, and according to, you know, people being willing to get tested on, on demand when they develop respiratory sim uh, symptoms, this is one of the things you sign up for when you do the, uh, the app study. Um, the, uh, you know, about, uh, I think at the moment you get sort of a, about three cases of non-COVID common colds and to one case of COVID. And, okay. uh, and because schools are open and universities are open, the younger age groups are driving the transmission and are passing it up through the, uh, through the, the different age groups. Um, and one of my colleagues uh, on, on our technical team has just recovered from her third bout of reinfection. Mm. And so that was the other hope, I think, that ended up being... I think both a misconception at the beginning and something that was that was suggested by scientists as a, as a way out of the pandemic, and then later turned out to be a little bit of uh, of of a misunderstanding of the science. I think, which is the idea of herd immunity, sure, um, uh, that you would that we would build up immunity over time through natural infection, 
um, which is really a misapplication of the concept of herd immunity. Isn't it? Doesn't it go back to like the the nature of it being a coronavirus as well? Like this idea that you could like catch a cold and then be immune to colds is sort of fantasy, right? So if this is a coronavirus, also, then mm. surely so what, that would be out the window from from day zero. So, so yeah. So what you're alluding to is the fact that there are common cold coronaviruses. Um, uh, I seem to remember that there are about that there are like four different major strains of those, and they circulate um, uh, in the way that common cold does. Uh, they are not as pernicious in terms of the risk of severe outcomes or long long term complications as COVID has unfortunately turned out to be. Mm. Um, but yes, reinfection with those is possible, and immunity to them is not going to be stable enough over time to protect you in the long, uh, in the long term. Mm. Uh, but of course, that is, um, those are only four strains of virus, and there are hundreds of uh, viruses um, of other types that can give you common cold uh, symptoms and that are spread um, through your breathing apparatus. Um, in various I, um, uh, permutations. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons why why the common cold has been so uh, so challenging has been that actually it's just an awful lot of viruses, and there will always be one that your immune system can't deal with terribly well, and then you've got the next one. I I read um, somewhere that the so the Spanish flu had mm. as it had worked its way around, it had become milder. And actually, they can still, is this, maybe I'm butchering the quote here, but I'm sure I remember reading this, that they can detect traces of the Spanish flu in the colds and flus and whatever that are going around today, but now they're obviously a lot milder. Is that your understanding also? Okay, so this is this is an interesting one. Um, uh, and again, sort of for historical background, so the Spanish flu was not really Spanish. Right. Um, uh, it arose in 1918. And um, I believe that it was traced back to um, uh, to the United States, and it came uh, into Europe through troop ships at the end of World War One, and it it was in Spain where the first severe outbreaks happened in garrison settings, spread like wildfire, and it was a particularly nasty strain of influenza. One of the things about influenza that coronavirus happily doesn't do is um, it has a genetic makeup where the genes come in chunks, just like humans have chromosomes, but much smaller. Right. And so what can happen is that if you have a single cell in a host, and this is often an animal host, that gets infected by two strains of flu virus, it reshuffles those segments and comes out as a completely novel thing. Right. This is called antigenic shift. And that's something that influenza can do that coronavirus um, to, the, to our knowledge, doesn't do, which is sort of wholesale reshuffling events like that that create completely new strains. So this was one against which humans of... Uh, so the human species had never encountered it before, and that's how you get an influenza pandemic, because no one then has enough immunity, and, uh, and as a result, that was a very severe illness. It killed preferentially um, uh, people... Uh, sort of in their prime, mm. and so it was. It was devastating in in uh, military settings, and of course the whole world was in a world war, and so there were a lot of those. 
And that's how that ended up being incredibly lethal, and in particularly in particular in in young adults. And is it still detectable and it is true, today, though? It, it, it is true that so in, influenza it doesn't really go away, and it keeps mutating at a slow clip. And we have several independently uh, it, it, several strains of influenza viruses that make their way around the globe in a, in a normal year, sort of you know, in, in an annual cycle, often coming out of uh, various uh, new, you know, new variants coming out of um, uh, various regions in Eastern Asia. And they make their way around the globe. Um, and they are distinct enough from previous ones that maybe one in five of the population has no previous immunity. Uh, uh, or not enough, sorry, I should say not enough previous immunity from previous bouts of encounter with similar viruses. Mm. And uh, and so the virus, uh, uh, the, those viruses overall can propagate themselves, and they keep they keep uh, varying their structure, and gradually uh, getting away from the immune response. And that's where you get seasonal flu. It happens to hit in Europe uh, in the uh, you know in the winter months, and that's of course also a place where a, t a time in the year when people gather indoors and can can spread the illness, which doesn't help. So, where so overall, seasonal influenza is um, is uh, less harmful for a variety of reasons. Um, the nineteen eighteen influenza actually was able not just to get into the lungs but spread throughout the body. Right. That was that. That's one big big way in which viruses can cause extra trouble because that means that the inflammation that help, that that is part of the part of the, of the immune system's response to controlling the virus then happens all over the body and systemic inflammation is bad news for our own organism because all of these defensive reactions can be harmful to normal tissues in our body as well it's called immune pathology um, so if you uh, so, but but the seasonal strains of influenza just vary a little bit year on year. They don't do a grand reshuffling. They have a little bit of variation from one year to the next, to the point where you'll have some people who don't have enough immunity to just nip it in the bud, okay. and those are the ones who then transmit it. And if you're looking at, you know, you will have, uh, uh, you know, during the pandemic, everyone heard about our numbers for for um, for COVID. Mm. And that virus had an R number of three to begin with, and then several of the variants became more and more transmissible. For influenza, seasonal influenza has an R value of around 1.3. Okay. So, um, and and of course now everything is different because and you can't really speak of uh, of sort of a basic R number because we all have partial immunity, and the concept doesn't apply in quite the same way. So, so as the Spanish flu or United States flu that then migrated to uh, <laughs> yeah, Spain. it's called the. I mean, by all means, yeah. call it the Spanish flu. It is how it is known. Um, so, as the Spanish flu uh, mutated or adapted and evolved, um, and it became less deadly, is that like that? There was a lot being talked about around this uh, in the in the, the the mid sort of throes of the pandemic. Was that you know it will probably mutate and that you'll get variants and subvariants and eventually mm. it will just sort of wind its way down to being a you know, basically yes. a nasty cold. Is that like is that accurate, or was that disinformation as well? Or I think so. I think there is so there are there are common thoughts about this, mm. um, and one of them uh, is that uh, in general, um, a virus doesn't care to kill you. 
as in it doesn't want to kill you or it doesn't care if it, you... it hasn't it has no intent sure and also there and also depending on how good it is how good it is at killing you um getting better and better at killing you may not be the best strategy for the virus yeah so the only thing that, uh, that the virus can in any meaningful sense be said to to care about and of course it's not conscious it's a it's a, it's you know it's a bit of bit of genetic bad news wrapped in some lipids and proteins um to to paraphrase um uh, a common description of a virus the only uh, um, thing that ensures its survival is is the ability to replicate and to move from one uh, unwilling host to another and so the so is it in, in if, the virus's if, if, interest if, the, if, if you have a virus that is so nasty that first of all it lays you down uh, only after you develop symptoms and then so severely that you're going to just be isolated anyway because you're not wandering around yeah because you're too ill then uh you know then the virus might be might be terrible for you but it's not going to be terrible to humans in general for very long because it's not going to spread very far. Mm. So there have been outbreaks of Ebola that have been fairly self-limiting because uh, because people got too ill to be effective transmitters. That's a really interesting um, point and, to make, and, actually. And, and SARS uh, uh, it was never terribly good at transmitting from human to human, and part of that was because it caused symptoms relatively uh, uh, early on in the course of being infectious. Yeah. So what is interesting about COVID is, first of all, on the spectrum of things like Ebola or SARS or MERS to seasonal flu, it is more lethal than we would li like it to be. No one likes a virus to have any death rate, mm. but it is not that lethal. And so becoming less lethal is not, not necessarily going to help it spread any better. And the other thing is that we know that it can spread Without before it causes any symptoms, if it ever does. So there are asymptomatic spreaders, and there are people who spread who who are infectious before they develop symptoms themselves. Mm. So just to to sort of play that back to you, so uh, mm. it is not in the virus's interest to lay you out where you're not then interacting with other people, where it could make that leap yes. from person A to person B. Um, yes. So in some instances, viruses might mutate to become a little bit more mild so that then you are still able to go around and the virus can continue to jump and grow and grow yes. amongst the population. However, with COVID, you're saying um, because it's now mutated and we've got variants and subvariants and it's at a state where uh, you can pass it on amongst the crowd, amongst the people within the train uh, before it's really laid you out it has no real incentive like the virus doesn't necessarily care if you get laid out sort of in three four days because by that point it's already been spread to another three or four or five people that yes that's right? fair yeah cool. that's that, that i think you i think you got that exactly right um so basically for the virus there's little mileage in becoming less lethal mm. um uh, and it is already able to spread um uh, asymptomatically and on top of that through the through evolving variants, it seems to have got better at that. Mm. So, if you're looking at the progression of the main variants that were circulating in the UK, 
it went um, in a way that any classical scholar will dislike. It went from alpha to delta to omicron. Yeah. Um, and um, if you uh, and each of those was a gain in the ability to transmit compared to the original strain that we imported um, originally from uh, from China, but uh, via. Uh, various uh, European states where it, it had already begun uh, to mutate a little bit. Is it? Can I just uh, ask? So, so, it, so it's become it, it had become more transmissible, and in the first major variants, it seems to have become more virulent. So people without vaccine immunity or without natural immunity could get infected, and and the risk of bad outcomes like hospitalization and deaths like for like, seem to be getting worse for alpha and for delta. It seems to have got a little bit better, all things considered, for Omicron, but Omicron had the ability to reinfect people who had previously um, uh, survived and weathered a bout of alpha or delta. Yeah. And now we are dealing with subvariants of Omicron, um, but basically the, the virus seems to have, uh, seems to have uh, become more and more transmissible, but not always was that by becoming more benign. Sure. No, that's... that's uh, Omicron that's, does seem to have gone in that direction, but I think the jury is out about, about what further potential there is uh, for mutations. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there is, a, there is a, one strain of thought which basically says eventually uh, the, the virus will run out of novel ways of mutating and they will then sort of be in a space where some people will always, you know, have lost enough immunity to get reinfected eventually, but there's not. But but you're going to sort of just have a cloud of variants that can all sort of circulate well enough, but but you've sort of exhausted the possibilities that exist for it. Mm. Uh, but I think that's very much hand waving. I I don't think I would feel comfortable, and I'm not enough of a vir virologist really, to um, to speculate now about uh, about how the sort of the interplay of immunity and viral variation and 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 the ability of the virus to get around the defenses of the immune system is going to evolve in 10 years time but this whole overall trend towards becoming benign that's that's a very rough rule and i think if any if that applies at all it'll only apply over the very long term i don't think that it's necessarily a a rule that's pre that's useful for prediction in the short term Right. That's interesting because it's sort of, it almost, I'm, I'm using slightly uh, dramatic language here, but it, it sort of condemns us to living with COVID, right? And that we just have to begrudgingly accept that 400 people so, a week are going to die from it. This is clearly psychologically very, very difficult. So, um, and this is one of the places where, where, where you do see sort of all the, all the strands of the discussion on Twitter um, since, since you and I both, both met there. Sure. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because, um, and again, if, if, if you're saying, well, you know, no one in politics and very few people in the media are interested in saying, well, you know what, it's another Monday and still around and be careful. It just gets very, very boring, mm. you know, and I get that. Um, I still try when I go into lectures where statistically there will be someone spreading something like this. Uh, I still wear um, 
a mask. And now that we're dealing with Omicron, it's clear that the surgical masks are not good enough anymore. And so I'm, I do invest in, you know, FFP2 grade. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, it never makes quite the perfect fit around your face, but it's going to be better than having something that flaps in the wind and uh, allows virus particles to come through. Surgical masks are really against, good against droplets, but not against aerosols that are smaller, that are just float in the air. And that seems to be how COVID seems to spread. Mm. But uh, but I know that, um, of course, in lecture theatres, uh, students in the UK are uh, painfully polite, and they will not criticise you for it. But if I go into... Uh, into other group settings uh, in in my social life, sometimes I get to enjoy that. Um, I think uh, you know I talked about the fact that I sing in choirs, sure. um, and I still wear a mask in choir settings because, mm. for one thing, I don't want to be a source of infection to other people who, on average, are older and sometimes uh, maybe clinically more vulnerable for various reasons, and I don't want to give it to them. Mm. Uh, but I get A, funny looks, uh, B, occasionally pointed remarks about, oh, are you still wearing this thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I have had people who are more vulnerable than me walking in and sitting with neighbors and uh, um, having cold symptoms. And they just say, oh, I just have a cold. Do you know that that could be COVID? Oh. Um, and then days later, I find that half a dozen people sitting around the same person um, got infected yeah uh, so i think there is um, there's a reluctance uh, to continue to adapt to this and i think it's partly very understandably because it was very burdensome it was just a really rough time especially the period when we were physically uh, isolated from friends and loved ones and it was a horror it, it was a particular horror in care homes where they still get, didn't get the protection from it. But, uh, but I think it was difficult for, for all of us. But is it um, also, like, like you mentioned sort of psychologically, it's a difficult yeah. thing to take on board. And, and I agree. I think it's, yes. there, there's this, if, if you try to explain to someone that the world has changed, that we, we have this virus, we're going to have to live with it. And part of living with it is actually being an adult and accepting mm. that you yourself could be infectious and that other people around you could be infectious and we're all just going to have to play nicely and think of others a little bit more. But I think for a lot of people, they're like, fingers in ears, la la la, I don't want to have to accept that the world has changed. I want things back to the same way that they were before. I don't want to have to wear this mask. I, you know, it's it's... For some people, that's a harder thing to, to take on the shoulders, isn't it? And, and perhaps there's something positive about it, which is, you know, I'm not going, I mean, for in, in, in some people's minds, the risk assessment might be, look, you know, yes, I know I'm taking a risk. And, uh, and I prefer living with that risk and, uh, and being a bit, bit freer with my uh, social interactions and, and so on. And that freedom is worth that risk for me. And I think if people make a conscious choice like that, there's still a question about how those choices affect others when it might not be you, but someone three rounds of transmission away from you who gets it so badly that they die. So I think there's still an ethical question there, uh, which, which might, be, might be rude to bring up in polite conversation. But uh, I think that it's some, certainly something that is on my mind when when... I'm trying to take steps that protect not just me from others, but also others 
from me. And if anything, uh, mask wearing will uh, will will um, has 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 a has a reasonable chance of protecting others from my effusions. Um, um, if I if I happen to carry the virus, whether I know it or not. Sure, sure. Um, Dr. Robert, uh, we've been talking for an hour. It's it's flown by. Um, everything that you've been saying has yes. been so interesting. I've just been, you know, lapping it up. But um, I, I wondered if I could just ask you one more question. Uh, uh, yep. And I've asked this of a, a few mm -hmm. guests uh, that have come mm -hmm. on, um, particularly or usually uh, academics, because I'm of the sort of persuasion and, and sensibility where I have very little faith and hope left in the state of the world i think if a nuclear war doesn't happen then climate change is going to render the planet uninhabitable and if that doesn't happen the oil's going to run out and chaos will ensue uh, ensue sorry um what where do you sit on the you know i have faith or i have no faith kind of scale where do you think we're headed okay ah uh, well I think one one um, segue from what we've been talking about to this t topic is this. If you're looking at the science around climate change, it's very clear that the way to minimize further harm, further overstretching the carrying capacity of uh, of the planet is uh, for, for us individually and collectively to act on a scale that is difficult to contemplate and really to prioritize um, making things not worse for future generations and indeed for our later lives because the, the damage from climate change is already visible and very clear and it's only one of a bunch of tipping points about how we're overstretching the planet. So one of the consequences of the way that humans encroach on, uh, on the rest of the biosphere is, in is uh, that we're creating increasing opportunities for animal pathogens, for viruses mm -hmm. uh, in particular, to jump species to humans. And this is um, whether this is indirect um, uh, uh, through a lab leak or through the wet markets in Wuhan doesn't really particularly matter. Um, that's perhaps an interesting um, uh, discussion for another day. Uh, but, uh, but this is one of the consequences uh, of how humans are changing the, the planet in the big picture. It is, um, for want of a better wor word, our fault. In response to this particular emerging virus that has turned into a pandemic, we have signally failed to live up to the challenge of containing it and making it go away. We are now faced with the question of the extent to which we let it run and run its course, mm -hmm. the extent to which we persist in acting on it, and, uh, and we're going to find a trajectory, but it seems to err on the side of, you know, the closer to business as usual we get, the more comfortable we're going to feel. But with that comes an increased burden of unpleasantness, of long COVID, of an increased risk of cardiovascular incidents that might happen, you know, maybe a year on out. So there are interesting uh, early studies that 
suggest that after COVID you have an increased risk, um, uh, at least for a while, of getting uh, of, of of getting um, heart attacks and the like. Mm -hmm. um, there is there are people who um, who end up um, severely compromised in their ability to function because they haven't because of something that their immune system or their vascular system has done in response to the initial infection. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting research about that. But the upshot of all of that is um, is we are living with with a lot of consequences of the fact that we haven't actually grasped the nettle. We haven't actually looked the problem square in the eye and acted in such a way as to nip it in the bud. And now it's with us. Mm. Um, so if that happens with uh, sort of one of them, you know, if if anything, sort of this is a this is a minor mild side effect of cli climate change in the in that in that bigger picture, or in the picture of human encroachment on the carrying capacity of the planet. This is minor. So if in response to the minor challenge, we're saying, oh, you know, it's it's fine. Um, we're going to just muddle through. I sort of very much see the same thing happening with climate change. We are not really changing our behavior in regard to uh, where we source our energy, how we consume it, and how we uh, how we act collectively to um, uh, to 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 defossilize um, our uh, our energy supply. And indeed, we have a little bit uh, of of a human conflict. It's obviously a huge one uh, in Ukraine, but on you know on a global scale, uh, there's it's 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 a it's a regional uh, conflict. And uh, the gas markets explode, and we realize just how dependent we still are on the stuff. Mm. So we haven't really acted to, re to, to we haven't looked that problem squarely in the eye and that in the end is going to be the grandmother of challenges mm. uh, for us so I, I think um, you know um, I, I, I believe you like to uh, to have a dystopia warning in your in your podcasts and I, th I think in the end it's interesting how we are being led by our tendency to prefer not changing, to prefer business as usual mm. into a situation that is probably rather less pleasant than it might otherwise have been if we had actually said, here's a problem, here's the shape of what we need to navigate, let's find a better path than just letting it roll over us. Mm. And we're not, we've done some things, okay? So influenza... Uh, is being kept at bay partly by vaccination, partly by a behind-the-scenes effort at monitoring variants and adapting vaccines. Uh, there's a huge public health effort that no one gets to see because because people think seasonal flu is just seasonal flu and it happens anyway. Uh, hospitals, the NHS, has to adapt every winter to it. And now we have COVID on top. And, um, and the idea of letting a new illness uh, sort of play itself out without any mitigation is going to come with costs. Mm. Um, so, uh, so yes, there is an interface there between science and politics. Uh, but I think, I think better solutions to our collective problems come from understanding the problem and looking it squarely in the eye, and then saying, well, what is our best path? And my take on it is generally the best path is not just to let it run its course. The best path happens when humans use their ingenuity to find better solutions. Mm. Dark. Uh, 
when, when we well, consider no, because the there's hope in it because we are capable of the ingenuity. We are capable of innovation. Oh, wait, I agree. I mean, but I think... there is a question of of human sluggishness, isn't there? Yeah. Well, it's, it's the sort of short-termist versus the long-termist view. So I, I, I'm imagining mm. that you and I would agree that the future, energy-wise, let's let's focus on the fossil fuel uh, nightmare mm -hmm. first of all. That we could uh, we could put nuclear power stations, about four or five of them, around the country. We could invest heavily in solar and wind. Um, we could probably find a way to, if not entirely, power the UK by renewables. Then at least a, a fairly healthy chunk of it and make it, you know, inch towards self-sustainability. Um, but that is a long-term goal, trying to fix a long-term problem. And I feel like in the UK, and to be fair, other countries also, like the, the US, I, I'm sure, inarguably has this, they, they're governed by, what, like four or five-year parliamentary or presidential terms. Uh, people want to get a quick win in or a quick jab, um, cause a scandal. <laughs> Uh, kick the government out, get your government in. Um, uh, and so where a, a country, let's say like China and Russia, I guess, um, where they don't necessarily have to worry about like four or five year presidential terms for, you know, obvious reasons, uh, they can look at the future in a sort of 10, 20, 30 year kind of strategy way. Um, but over here and because the West, uh, well, I was about to say because the West run the world, uh, because the West at least half run half the world, um, and they're governed by this sort of short-termist political strategy. I my faith remains on the floor. I'm a bit like I I just don't see. I think some smart people will step forward and go. This is what we need to do if we really want to take climate change and fossil fuels seriously and fix these problems. And then the second that that person says that somebody else will step forward and go like, whoa, whoa, whoa no, no, he's lying to you and uh, here's some disinformation and now now get my guys in and it will just be... Like that's, I don't know, that's, mm -hmm. that's my take so on this, it. So I think, I mean, you're, you're, you're raising some interesting questions, uh, but I, I think on recent form, um, the authoritarian regimes that you've mentioned mm. don't really have a track, track record that says, well, just because we have the luxury of being able to think long term because we don't have to deal with divergent public opinion in in the same way it doesn't mean that they've in practice really done that much uh, done anything more you know russia has its own resource curse it's a fossil fuel producer and if anything it uses its prowess at doing that to blackmail um uh, europe um with um, with turning off the, the gas supply. Yeah. Uh, China has made some really interesting strides in terms of solar technology and renewables on, on the one hand, but on the other hand has also built coal-fired power plants mm. at a rate that completely swamps out um, uh, the, the scope for us to build, build wind farms against it. So I don't think that authoritarianism is necessarily Necessarily, the solution. Oh, sure. Uh, no. Unless you have the yeah, exceptional, very, very enlightened dictator, <laughs> um, who, who, um, you know, is sort of a sort of platonic philosopher king. But that's the thing: people with absolute power have tended not to have that sort of mindset. I mean, that's, that's think, my ultimate. I think 
goal and, for and this. And in the, the West, what is what is what is ironic is we've had you know in some major Western countries we've had some long-term leaders. We had Merkel in Germany, whose Energiewende has been entirely counterproductive. I'm afraid to say, um, much though I respect some of the other things that she managed to do. Um, and in this country, we've had um, a, a dozen or so years under a government that was ostensibly uh, led by the same party. But uh, again, they've sort of applied the wrong recipes at the wrong time uh, in the economic sphere and never really had the capacity to build a lasting solution that would increase the energy resilience in this country. Mm. Um, so, you know, where, where that leaves us, I'm not... I'm not sure that there's a particular government that is decisive here so much as, again, uh, you know, sh sharing enough of a, of a common ground of mutually accepted facts mm. uh, on which some things can be isolated from the political back and forth um, for, for the common good. Mm. And I don't, I don't have a recipe for that, but it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge. If I were to ask you, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being absolutely fucked and z one, well, I was going to say zero, one, well, zero or one being, uh, no, I think we're going to be fine. Uh, where do you think? Sun, sunny uplands. Yeah. Well, I, I think I can, yeah. I can respond. I can respond with the, um, with, I think, uh, an economist's quip, which is that in the long run, we're all dead. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. No, but I, th I mean, I, te I tend towards the higher numbers, I'm afraid. So in that sense, I'm with you. Uh, what I would say is uh, that I think there is a bit of wiggle room about how high the number can be. And there is there is sort of, you know, there is the dreg of hope that refuses to die that says, well, maybe we can if we can all work to turn the dial down by, uh, by a digit or two, in our, uh, you know, with, with whatever action we can take in our own lives and with the way that we can work with others then maybe that leaves us uh, with enough hope to to carry on um and i think that's a worthwhile aspiration even though it seems like a small one i think it's it's one of the biggest ones you can which is to say well what where where is the the wiggle room in your lives to make things better sure. and that can come in all sorts of interesting ways sure. and unexpectedly sometimes um Dr. Robert Bush, we are out of time, but thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, it's been really no, interesting. Indeed. We haven't even talked. What is interesting here is we haven't even uh, touched on anything related to my actual research. <laughs> um, and, and really, we haven't dealt with, we've talked a lot more about COVID than we have about the immune system. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, so maybe there's going to be um, a, a future episode, but in the meantime, it's been a really interesting conversation um, for me as well. So, Sure. Thank you. And I hope that I've been coherent enough to be editable so that when the podcast goes out, it will be uh, of some interest to people. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're very for welcome. Having me. Thank you. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'd love to have you on again sometime uh, and we can talk about your studies and your area of uh, expertise. Um, I think we got into some really interesting stuff, though, about uh, about COVID, COVID and uh, disinformation and, and indeed um, uh, incoming dystopia. Um, if you would like to follow Dr. Robert Bush, uh, you can Google him and, and get to his Twitter that way. Um, what's your actual handle on Twitter, Doctor? It's Robert Bush 65. I'm thinking there might be an underline somewhere in there. Um, uh, okay. but that would be one way of finding me. Um, and of course, in my in my work capacity, uh, there are web pages on the University of Roehampton 
uh, if you want to dig into my research. But uh, this has been very much um, uh, sort of this, this conversation has ended up being a little bit more like my Twitter persona, which which does touch on a wider range of topics than, than my research specialty, it has to be said. Cool. Yeah. Right. So yes. Um, cool. Well, yeah. Thank you again for for joining us. Um, a uh, little bit of information on on the podcast uh, for anyone that's uh, that's interested. Um, so I do run a Patreon. Um, so if you're enjoying uh, a few different episodes of the podcast, then maybe consider jumping on that. It's patreon.com forward slash aid Thompson with an I N on the end. There's three tiers that you can jump on. The cheapest one is just three pounds a month, which is just enough to uh, well, really, it's a doff of the cap. To me it's a it's a doff of the cap and a thanks aid i'm enjoying the show um and uh, and then i can spend that on a beer which i may or may not drink in the middle of the show um there's some other tiers on there as well and they get you a range of different benefits and they uh, uh they move from what like the london meetup which we've got coming up on thursday the 27th of october so just a couple of weeks away uh that's in east london uh, we've got a Discord channel where we talk about politics and share memes and uh, all of that stuff. Um, we've got an RSS feed where I'm posting each of these podcast episodes uh, two days earlier to uh, Patreon backers. And you can get that on subscription immediately to your podcast player. So there's uh, there's a lot to look at. Oh, and the, the, like the God tier, the golden tier, if you like, uh, the elite tier is um i think it's 10 pounds a month which is frankly ridiculous but if you if you really loved the show you could jump on that and uh if you join the 10 pound tier people uh then i'm going to do a monthly skype call uh where the 10 pound people can jump on with me and we can talk about anything you like you can ask me about politics life love the universe whatever uh, if you're not in a position to support via Patreon, that is totally understandable. It is a weird time for everyone financially. Uh, as I said at the beginning, though, if you're enjoying the show, maybe just share me about. Just copy uh, the link to an episode that you've enjoyed, pop into WhatsApp or Signal or whatever you're using and send it to a mate and just say, I found this podcast and uh, might be something that you're into. You might find it interesting also um, or something along those lines. You, you can be creative. I don't mind. Um, thank you once again to my uh, guest tonight, Dr. Robert Bush. I'll be back on Wednesday with the solo show and then next Friday night uh, with another guest. So thank you once again. Goodbye. We outie.